Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Continuing to think together about what it means to be rooted in hope. And uh, I was thinking about uh, Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My thought about that is this. Is that your experience? Is that how you think of your relationship and the emotional connection that you have with God. The Lord is shepherd, you know, green pastures, still waters, restored souls, no fear, goodness and mercy following us every day of our life. I think we struggle. Maybe that's too broad. I think I struggle to really put all of that together to, to, to feel sort of that kind of peaceful tranquility in the middle of life and challenges and things that happen. And so I think when we, when we slow down and we sit into some space and we talk about what does it mean to be rooted in hope, hope is not wishful thinking. It's, it's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of believing some things about the way the world is made and who God is and who we are that fills us with optimism, with, with a sense that it's going to be okay, that the Lord is our shepherd, that goodness and mercy are following us every day of our life, that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even then, we will fear no evil. And, and, and it feels to me like in the middle of COVID, in the middle of the divisiveness of our culture, in the middle of all the issues that have been boiling under the surface, that maybe we, we are fearing all kinds of evil. That fear has become such a part of our daily existence and the levels of uncertainty. And, and there's really nothing that gets brought forward that doesn't get pulled into these polemic directions. And whether it's a vaccine for COVID or whether it's COVID itself or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask or politics or whatever it is. And so we're invited into this space, into this relationship with God that's, that's supposed to feed our souls and help us. But we do that with a great deal of uncertainty. At least I do. And so when I start to think about my spiritual journey and, and I think about what it means for me to be rooted in hope, today I, I just want us to think about this, what it means for us to have an advocate over a judge, an advocate over a judge. Uh, Thomas Merton was an American monk. Uh, he died on December 10th, 1968. Uh, he, he had an interesting life. His uh, mother died when he was very young. His father was uh, a, an eccentric artist, a, a, an artist of some accomplishment, 
enough that it allowed him to be sort of a traveler around the world. And so as a young boy, uh, not only suffering from the loneliness of the loss of his mother, but then his father traveled and he often traveled with him and uh, sometimes left with relatives, sometimes just left behind. Uh, and, and he just developed sort of this longing and this inner loneliness. And so as he came of age and he became a teenager, he and into his young adult life, he, he became very promiscuous in his relationships. He, he became very, uh, uh, you know, prone to drunkenness and, and uh, suffered from alcoholism. And uh, he, he had issues with rage and anger and he, just a, a rough kind of series of events in his life. And then he came to know Jesus Christ, like a classic prodigal son kind of conversion. And it was radical. It changed and transformed his life. And all the things that he had thought about sort of evaporated into a passionate commitment for all things that had to do with justice and advocacy for the poor. And, and, and he, he became this sort of reflective intellectual. He decided to become a Franciscan priest. And so he applied for the priesthood. And I didn't even know this was possible. But they told him no. That his previous life was so uh, in such upheaval that they didn't think he belonged to the order. And so kind of coming away from that, he, he was invited to a monastery in Bardstown, Kentucky, uh, a Trappist uh, monastery, and he arrived there, and they said, why don't you come and stay for a few days? And he came, and uh, when he arrived there, they had him for the first several days washing dishes and scrubbing floors, and finally he got his interview, and he was interviewed, and they were really trying to see what his sincerity was about, and ultimately he was accepted, and he spent the rest of his life uh, in that monastery called the Gethsemane Monastery. And, uh, and he began to become this prolific, reflective mind and spirit. And he probably did more in the 20th century to open up our eyes and hearts and minds to this intimate relationship we share with God. He lived in a little hermitage on that campus, and, and he wrote prolifically more than four dozen books in his life. And if you decide to go get them, just be warned. They are dense. Many of them are very, very deeply intellectual, and they move us into these uh, just depths of what it means to be a human being connecting with God. If he didn't write anything else, he wrote something that has come to be known as the Merton Prayer. And I think what appeals to me in this prayer is its honesty, is the fact that here is a guy who has gone from, you know, this journey that he's been on. He knows what life looks like when you indulge everything, and he knows what it, it's like to have this radical conversion, and he knows what it's like to come away and, and, and live in a little hermitage and write and reflect and pray and do all of those things, and yet he still captures the humility and uncertainty of what I think most of us feel when we think about what it means to follow God. Here's how the prayer goes. Oh, Lord, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. 
But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. I I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire to please you. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to make my journey alone. I I love that. I love this prayer. And, And I think the reason I do is I think it captures an honesty about how we navigate our lives. And I get, I get calls and emails and, and I get articles and I get invited to, you know, watch seminars and read books that advocate for me to be certain about things. They advocate for me to, to charge in, to take control, to pray against, to, to, to storm the gates of hell, to, to be certain and sure and all of these things that I, you know, as a minister, I'm supposed to... I'm supposed to see and have all these deep insights into how the world works and what God wants to do. And so when I come across something like this from a a theologian and a mystic like Thomas Merton, it resonates with me deeply because I don't understand it all. I don't feel certain about exactly how God is working in this present moment. I don't know what it all means and how it all fits together. And it seems to me that where you and I see God sitting has a lot to do with how we believe we're supposed to behave. If it's okay for us to feel some level of uncertainty and insecurity, if, it's, if we're supposed to be resolute and we're supposed to understand it all and we're supposed to have definitive answers, or if we feel like God's just with us in this. I've shared with you this story before. Years ago, Bob Benson told a story about his son. His son had become a member of the marching band, and he talks about in the story how it sort of opened up a whole new cultural experience for the family, and suddenly Friday night football games became really important, but, but then also band competitions became important. And Benson talks about the, the fact that they, he goes to his first state championship, and, and, and his son's band is one of three finalists, and and he says, you know, they walk out onto the field to perform that final round, and the, the director, knowing that they might make the finals, has saved a little something. And his son, who plays percussion, the, the band director has had the percussion section paint their faces in the school color, and his son walks out, and he's all painted up and ready to go, and he talks about the experience of what happens in that moment. I want to read exactly what he writes marching toward the stands, filled with cheering parents and friends, playing wide open with all that pain on his face, turning, marching towards the stands in perfect step with a hundred other kids, head high, back straight, beating 50 pounds of drum as if it was his task to set the tempo for the whole world. Finally, coming to attention as the last echoes of the music from the concluding song of the final show are lost in the noise of the crowd, Benson asked his son, what is it like to stand in that moment? My son just smiled. He thought he really couldn't put it into words what a moment like that was like. And Benson turns to his son and said, if you think that's something, 
Someday I hope you can sit and watch your son experience a moment like that. And then Benson writes these words. My thinking about this nudged me into some further thoughts about the Heavenly Father, the one who is calling us. We all tend to believe, or at least fear, that, God, that the God who calls us is watching us. It makes all the difference in the world where we think He's sitting. As long as we think of Him as a judge in the press box who is checking for smudges on our white shoes, for misplayed notes, for marching out of step, for our hats falling off, or any one of a dozen other things that can happen to us in a performance, it's hard to keep from living our whole lives in fear of a button falling off of our tunics. It was Jesus Himself who reminded us that we were to call Him Father, Abba Father, which is a lot more like calling Him Dad. I think Jesus was telling us that our Father is the one in the stands who is standing on the seat, waving His coat in a circle over His head with tears of pride and happiness running down His face. Where does God sit in your story? Do you see Him as the judge in the press box? Do you see Him as the loving Father who's cheering you on? It matters if you believe you have a judge or an advocate. It matters. How do you see God? How do you think He sees you? What do you think He thinks about you? What do you think He feels in relationship to you? I think that's what Paul is passionately writing about in Romans chapter 8. Listen to his words. And see if the words of, uh, of Thomas Merton in that prayer and the idea of who God is start to sort of sink in as he passionately pleads with us to see God for who he really is. Listen to what he writes, Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. I think Paul is pleading for us to embrace a deep, deep truth that we have the hope of an advocate over a judge. We have the hope of seeing and receiving and walking with a comforter and a paraclete and an advocate instead of someone who is judging us. And I think there are five things that you and I ought to chew on this morning that help us be rooted in hope. Number one, an advocate helps us in our weakness. An advocate helps us in our weakness. Now, that's probably not a resounding new thought for you, except I would challenge you with this. How many times have you heard these words and intellectually said, yeah, we have an advocate who helps us in our weakness. But how often do you, as you experience weakness, feel, feel, embrace the reality that God helps us in our weakness? Depending on where you see God sitting, it's a transformational thought. An advocate helps us in our weakness. A judge focuses on and is preoccupied with our weaknesses. Which do you see God doing? Do you feel like God has a clipboard and a 
pen and as we go through our daily life, as we think our thoughts, as we do our deeds, as we feel our feelings, that he's going, yep, that's a bad one. Oh, yeah, going to have to work on that. Making a note of that. That's a demerit. Or do you see that God is a person that says, oh, let me come beside you. Let me sweep you up. Paul is convinced that the God of the universe sees our weaknesses and he's moved with compassion to lift us and support us and wrap us up and to fill up what is lacking. In fact, in another letter, Paul says that his strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. That we ought to glory in our weaknesses because when we're weak, that's when we're strong. That's when God does his best work because that's when we understand our need for him. And I bet for most of us, it's in our weakness that we begin to push God away, that we begin to hide, that we, that we begin to feel shame and we cover up. And Paul says it's just the opposite. We have an advocate who helps us in our weakness. That can only make sense if we believe that God is an advocate and not a judge. Number two, an advocate understands our issues. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That's a profound passage of Scripture. I, I think we could probably do a whole series just on that one verse, the one half of one verse. How often do we believe we know what we ought to pray for, or we think we ought to know what we ought to pray for? Or We do not know, Paul says, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. It means that God understands that we have issues. That we are people of limited perspective, living among people of limited understanding, within a context of systemic dysfunction, sprinkled liberally with elements of meanness and selfishness and distraction. Theologians have been discussing for generations the idea and issue of systemic evil. And you and I, we live in a day and age where, where we've become acutely aware of what it means to participate in networks that are always causing problems. So, for example, right now, where you buy your coffee has some implication to the person that grows the coffee and where it comes from and is there fair trade and We've become more aware of the systemic nature of our lives and, and how even when we think we're doing good, probably somewhere, somehow, we're not doing quite the good we think we are. We see it every day. An advocate understands such things. The complexity of the world in which we live Though we do not even know how we ought to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us and speaks on our behalf, understanding our limitations, and takes our cause to the Father on our behalf. Listen, judges don't have that kind of time. Only advocates do. Number three, an advocate intercedes beyond words. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He wants us to understand that the advocate not only sees our issues, but takes action on our behalf. That, in fact, he sees us, and he understands us, and he listens to us. And then he goes to the Father on our behalf, and he prays prayers 
that are beyond words. He prays prayers and intercedes with thoughts and emotions, with the unknown and the unspoken and the unspeakable. And though we often have those feelings that we cannot put into words, I think that's what Paul's talking about. Though we attempt to pray, and the feelings get so mixed up inside of us that we don't know how to form them into words. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us and takes those unspeakable feelings and those unspeakable needs and those unspeakable thoughts and utters those groans on our behalf. That the cry of our heart is God's voice and interaction with us. That there is a love and a connection that is much deeper and more articulate than mere words. And Paul is simply saying that in advocacy there is an intimacy with God in which he gets the depth of who we are and how we function. Number four, an advocate invites us to deep communion. And he who searches our hearts, verse 27, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I suppose if you just analyze this, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people. I think Paul's saying we're invited to some kind of mind meld with God. We're invited to be in space with God where the Holy Spirit speaks into our lives and into our hearts and understands us and listens to us, but also knows the mind of God and sees deep into those two realities and brings those two things together. Who we are, what we're about, our weaknesses, our failures, our limitations, and who God is. And the Holy Spirit becomes the one who intercedes and connects and creates a level of deep communion so that we are in this intimate relationship with God. I don't know about you, but what I start to think about in this moment is, I don't need to be so analytical, and I don't need to form and have all these special prayers. And I think sometimes I, I want to get it all you know, lined up in my brain. I, I, you know, when you write sermons for a living, you, you're constantly trying to think how it fits together, you know. Well, how does that go? Okay, well, what's the first point? Well, how does that logically lead to the next thing? Okay, and I, and I want my spiritual life to work like that. I wish it was neat like that, an introduction and, and, and a scripture and an application and, you know, some points to ponder and all that. But life isn't like that. It's messy. It's messy and it's unruly and and our thoughts and our emotions and our connections and our relationships are, they're messy and they're hard. And things happen that we can't explain. And we have a brand of Christianity that it's, it's more like, you know, crusaders. It's, it's more like, let's go out and, you know, let's conquer some things and let's tear some things down and let's blow something up. And it seems to me that God's inviting us into a whole different kind of relationship where those who have seen Jesus face to face, Paul is saying, I, we don't know how we ought to pray. 
But we're invited to sit in space with this loving Holy Spirit who searches our hearts and knows the mind of God. And I wonder how often we just get quiet. We just shut up. We stop telling God what He needs to do and what we need from Him. And we just sit in space and we just invite the Holy Spirit to do work in us, to just be in that space, just do something that is more than my thoughts, that's healing to my emotions, that does work in my spirit. I wonder how many of us say, well, you know, I, I've spent this many hours this week doing this activity, watching TV, or I spent this many hours cleaning the house, or I spent this many hours, you know, doing whatever hobby I have. But how many minutes have we just sat quietly? And how often do we think about time with God as, as something we dread? I'm going to have to read, and then I'm going to have to pray, and I always get distracted, and I don't know what the Bible means, and I fall asleep while I'm praying. What if all we thought about is we have an advocate and not a judge? And we can bring ourselves into this space and just sit in that space because He offers us deep communion to just breathe in the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think about David praying, Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's not prescribing a lot of things. He's not, he hasn't figured it out. He doesn't know all the things that he's supposed to do. He figures there's probably some things in his heart and mind that aren't okay. And he's just getting quiet. Psalms 46.10, be still and know that I am God. An advocate invites us into this place of communion where we feel like we have a, a friend, a place of peace, an escape, a sanctuary, a place where we don't have to be on, a place where we're not figuring it out, where we don't have the answers, where we don't even know how to pray, where we have all of our doubts and all of our worries and all of our imperfections, and He's an advocate in our weakness. But He extends to us this invitation of communion. And finally, number five, an advocate works all things for good. And we know, verse 28, that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And so that's where we rest. So Paul now, given all of our issues and all of our limitations and all of our weaknesses and all of our poor follow-through and all of our mistakes and all of our sin and all of our meanness and all of the systemic evil and all of the selfishness and all of the failure, we still have an advocate who even with all of that says, I will take all of that and I will work it together for good. I, I will bring something good out of it. That after all that we do and all that we say and all that we've lived and all that we've failed at, at some point this advocate will step into space and say, this one's okay. I've got them. Put them on my tab. <laughs> Given all that they have been through and all that they have done and all that has happened to them and all that they have chosen and all the weakness and all the limited perspective and all the stuff that's gone on in their journey, I'm working all of that together 
for good. And I think Paul is inviting us into this place in which we relate to God in that way. So here's my question. Do you? Do you? One of the reasons it's hard to be rooted in hope is because we see God as a disinterested judge. I mean, we hear it all the time. Where was God in the middle of that? What was he doing? Why was that allowed to happen? Because God works within the messiness of our lives. He works within the messiness of our culture. He works within the messiness of human beings. And human beings are messy. And relationships are messy. And human structures are messy. And they're imperfect and they're broken. We so often find ourselves blaming the light for the darkness. Instead of sitting down in space and saying, God, I know you're in this with us. I know you're in this with us. I'm so tired of people panicking on Facebook and social media. I'm just weary of it. I'm going to talk about it more next week, but we treat God like he's so fragile. Like somehow he's getting closed out of his whole creation. What arrogance. We do not even know how we ought to pray. But man, we don't have any trouble posting something on social media about what everybody else ought to be doing and what they ought to be seeing. Where's the humility in sitting in space and just admitting and confessing out loud and saying, you know what, God? We need you. I need an advocate. Do you see God as the judge in the press box? Or do you see him as the loving father in the stands up on his chair with his coat swinging over his head, tears streaming down his face as he cheers for you, cheers for you, cheers for you, celebrates you? The words roll off his lips, well done, good and faithful. Here's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here's my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Don't you imagine that, that at some point we'll be looking at God and we'll be saying, I don't think I'm as good as you think I am. Because he loves us like that. I'm going to close with this prayer. And I just want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. To me, it's just the depth of spirituality. As a band comes back, we're going to sing together a, another hymn at the close from another monk. Martin Luther writing, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. But listen to these words from Thomas Merton. Bow your heads. Let them wash over you. Oh, Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. 
And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire to please you. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear. For you are ever with me and you will never leave me to make my journey alone. God, we invite you, ask you to wrap your arms around some people today that need a sense that you are an advocate and not a judge. I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, to confess beside Paul, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But we invite you to intercede, to help us in our weakness, to advocate with groans to the Father, to speak the unspeakable feelings that go on inside of us, and to pull us forward into your will and into the kingdom of God that exists because of your grace, because your strength is made perfect in people, because you still forgive and you still redeem and you still do your work and you still take all of it together and promise in all of this, I'm going to work for your good. I pray today that as we sing these closing words that you would fill hearts, minds, homes, families with a confidence and a peace that whatever is being faced, it's going to be okay. You're going to see us through. You're going to work it for good. And we can rest in that grace and love. Would you in these closing moments bathe us in a communion with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.